I won't be like John Calvin and just pick up exactly where I left off three years later, three years earlier. Um, we were talking about the moments of redemption. They are distinct but intricately connected. They're never collapsed into each other, but they're never separated either. And we were in the middle of Romans chapter 5, and I wanted you to see this link that in Titus, redemption applied occurs through redemption accomplished. But in Romans 5, I want you to see that, see how closely justification and by his blood and reconciliation by his death, see how closely they're connected. What we need to see there is the synergy of redemption accomplished and applied together guarantees redemption consummated. In other words, in the logic of Romans 5, 9 and 10, if God has already done the most difficult thing, reconcile and justify us by Christ's death, redemption accomplished and applied, how much more will he rescue us on that last day of his wrath, redemption consummated? In other words, if redemption applied, uh, if redemption accomplished and applied have happened, redemption consummated is inevitable. Romans 8, verses 29 to 34. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In this passage, Paul presents a golden chain of God's salvation, which stretches back before the beginning of time, moves through time, and reaches forward to the end of time. Three moments of God's salvation in Christ are present in that chain. Redemption predestined, those he foreknew, he predestined. Redemption applied, those he called, he justified. And redemption consummated, those he justified, he glorified. Redemption predestined serves as the fountainhead that initiates the process of God's salvation in eternity past and which consummates in glorification in eternity future. And I want you to note the exact correspondence between those who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. The extent of salvation at each stage is exactly the same. Now, the moment of redemption accomplished, it's not present in the chain. But it is there in verses 29 to 30. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul speaks of Christ's death in antithetical terms. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And this compressed sentence is full of rich truths for the doctrine of the atonement. Note the adjective own. It adds drama to the sparing 
This was God's own beloved son whom he did not spare. Not only did God not spare him, but he gave him up a Pauline expression for Christ's substitutionary death. As Octavius Winslow writes movingly, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And if God has indeed given up his son for us, then how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? Now it is these all things that attach, that, that, that create a connection to redemption consummated. That create a connection between redemption apply, uh, accomplished. He gave up his son for us. He will give us all things. Redemption consummated. The all things are the blessings that we need on the path to final glorification. So Paul connects the moment of redemption accomplished, gave up his own son, to the moment of redemption consummated. He will give us all things in order for us to reach final glorification. But Paul presents here another connection, an unbreakable bond. For Paul, it is inconceivable For God to accomplish redemption for people and then not bring that redemption to its consummation in glorification. For Paul, the former, redemption accomplished, not only links to the latter, it guarantees the latter. In Paul's mind, how could it not? If God has already given Christ for us, how will he not also give us graces of lesser proportion? What Paul presents here is the efficacy of Christ's atoning work without any reference to its application. It cannot but produce its intended effect. Put another way, all those for whom Christ died cannot but be given all things in order to reach final glorification. Or to put it more simply, everyone for whom Christ died will be saved. But he's not a universalist. Another important insight for definite atonement exists in reference to those for whom the Son was given up. Did you see that? If Christ, uh, Paul presents redemption accomplished and consummated as for the same group, if Christ was given up for us all, how will God not only, uh, not also freely along with Christ give us all things in order to be glorified? In other words, those who are glorified are those for whom Christ was given up. This means that unless we wish to affirm universal salvation, the word all, all of us, must be constrained in some way. And what does the context tell us? The all of us are those who God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and will one day glorify. And the subsequent verses in verse 33, the all of us are stated as God's elect. And verse 34 those for whom Christ intercedes. It was for all of us for whom Christ was delivered. Now let me just take a step back and summarize Paul's soteriological framework thus far. We're still on point one. The saving work of God is indivisible. We've seen a number of things. First, Paul presents four key moments of God's salvation in Christ. Redemption predestined, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, redemption consummated. Set 
on a temporal canvas. Salvation for Paul is thoroughly eschatological. Eschatology in Paul is not just the wee bit at the end of soteriology. You get that? In Paul, eschatology is the canvas on which he paints his soteriology. From the moment of redemption predestined, God's redemptive purposes move inexorably forward to afford the final moment when redemption will be finally consummated. That's the first thing. Second, each of these four moments are are integrally connected, yet they are always distinct, never collapsed into each other, yet never separated either. For Paul, in moment one, our salvation was predestined. In moment two, the whole of our salvation was procured and secured, even though redemption was yet to be experientially applied. Moment three, an eschatologically consummated moment four. Paul ties the four moments together in such a way that moment one sets in motion moment two, and moment two is the source for moment three and the guarantee of moment four. These four moments of salvation do not belong to separate theological tracks, as if Christ's redemptive work were somehow disconnected from God's electing work. Rather, Paul presents one theological chain whose links join together to present God's redemptive purposes in Christ as one whole integrated salvation. The saving work of God in Christ is indivisible. Now, if you have the book, at various points in my second chapter, I try to bring out some theological reflections from this textual construction And let me just mention a few. What this does is it stops us from doing two things. It stops us from collapsing redemption accomplished and applied into the same moment. We were born children of wrath. There must be a distinction between those two moments. But what it also does is it stops us from separating those two moments as if Christ can die for people and never apply that salvation to those people. Paul's theology of the atonement stops us from collapsing the two moments, but it also stops us from separating the two moments. There are distinctions in Paul's moments of redemption. There are no disjunctions in Paul's moments of redemption. The second main point of Paul's soteriology, the saving work of God is circumscribed by God's electing grace. Let me just show this in one text, or two texts. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So there's God the Father's purpose in choosing us in Christ, that we should be holy and blameless. Now look at the Son's purpose in coming to die for us. Chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that 
she might be holy and without blemish. The same words are used as chapter 1 verse 4. So the intention of the Father was to choose us in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless. And the intention of the Son in coming to die was so that we would be holy and blameless. So what you have here is a unity between the Father and the Son. But note what the Son is doing. He is executing the electing will of the Father. The Son comes incarnate to die for us, to make us holy and blameless. And what's he doing? He is executing the electing will of the Father before time began. In other words, election circumscribes atonement. The atonement does not circumscribe election. We see that also in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. For the gospel, uh, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But note Note the connection between redemption predestined and redemption accomplished here. Verse 9, redemption predestined. Because he saved us. Why did God save us? Redemption applied. He saved us because of redemption predestined. Because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. And now look at what is the manifestation of God's electing grace. Verse 10 which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? It is the manifestation of the electing grace of God. God elects, Christ comes and manifests that electing grace. In other words, election circumscribes atonement. Redemption predestined is the fountainhead and shape of redemption accomplished. Now, how often do you hear that in in your churches? How often do you preach it? That the gospel is not first and foremost about the universal anthropological love of God. It is first and foremost a manifestation of his electing purpose and grace. For a particular people. That is how Paul presents the gospel. Jesus Christ is manifesting the doctrine of election. Some theological reflections on that. The first thing is that Amaraldianism, it's a named, it's a, it's a theological position, it's named after Moise Amaro, the French theologian who in uh, 1634 wrote his brief tract on predestination and then updated it in 1658. And what Moise Amaro argued was that God, before time, looked out on fallen humanity and said, I will send my son to die for them all. 
And then he knew that no one, because of total depravity, would actually believe in his son. And so then he decided to elect some who would believe in the universal atonement that his son had made for everyone. In other words, atonement circumscribed election. It was atonement first in the decrees of God, then it was election. But here in Paul, we see that it's actually the other way around. Ephesians 1 and 5, it's election first, and then the Son comes to execute the will of the election, the decree of election. So Paul's theology keeps us from an Amaraldian or a hypothetical universalist presentation of the order of decrees. And here's why that's important. Because on the Amaraldian scheme, the love of God for his elect is presented to us as an afterthought. God chose to come and to save the world through the universal atoning work of his son, but oh, forgot, no one's going to believe I need to elect some people so that my son's death doesn't go to waste. That is not how the Bible presents the love of God for his elect. Uh, Gerhardus Voss makes the excellent point in his essay, The Scriptural Basis or the Scriptural Basis for the Love of God, where he says the distributive emphasis in Scripture of the love of God is on the elect, not the general loving stance of God to the world. There is that display of God's love to the world, but it is not the emphasis in Scripture. So that's one of the theological reflections on that second point. Number three, the saving work of God in Christ, the saving work of God is encompassed by union with Christ. A number of texts in Paul speak of Christ's death and resurrection occurring in union with his people. Now, we've dealt with some of this in the first talk, so I'm just going to draw on some of that. But it is this concept of union with Christ that gives the atonement its efficacy. When I talk about the efficacy of the atonement or the effectiveness of the atonement, I'm not talking about it like it's a substance that's potent. Rather, it's an effective atonement because it is a personally... Uh, It is a personal union between the one who atones and the people for whom he atoned. So as in Romans 5 we saw earlier, whatever those connected to Adam are affected by Adam's actions, so those who are united to Christ are affected by his actions. Go back to that quote of Thomas Goodwin In God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all all other men hanging from their girdle strings. Picture that, two giants with belts on, with people hanging from them. Well, if Adam, the first giant, goes for a walk and falls, what happens to the people attached to him? They fall with him. Well, what happens if Christ, the second giant, goes for a walk and falls? Will they fall with him? But what if he rises? Will they rise with him? And that is the implicit uh, argument of Romans 5, that all those united to Adam do what Adam did, and all those united to Christ will benefit from what he did. God's or Christ's one act of obedience, as our head, covenant head, is so much more powerful than that one act of 
disobedience of Adam. That is Paul's argument in um, Romans 5. As Doug Moose says, there exists a life-giving union between Christ and his own that is similar to but more powerful than the death-producing union between Adam and his own. And if Christ's work is more powerful than the work of Adam, how could any human being ever resist that work? We also saw in Romans uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, verse 14 and 15, one died for all, therefore all died. Do you remember that in the previous session? Paul assumes a union between Christ and the all for whom he died. And then in Romans 6, this becomes more explicit. Romans 6, verse 4 and 5. Note the language of union. We were, we were buried with We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our union with Christ straddles his death and resurrection. And if we were united with him in his death, we will be united with him in his resurrection. In short, for Paul, believers were united with Christ spiritually in his death and in his resurrection. And that is the basis for the efficacy of the atonement. Paul's soteriology, in Paul's soteriology, Christ's death for people cannot be viewed in separation from his union with those same people. The for us and the with us, in us, go hand in hand. And that is why Christ's death is a potent efficacy. It is an efficacy in which redemption accomplished not only secures redemption applied, but it guarantees redemption applied and redemption consummated. How can Christ die for people to whom he is united and not actually save those people? So union with Christ is key to Paul's soteriology. It encompasses the saving work of God in Christ. And I'm just been talking about union with Christ at the point of redemption accomplished when Christ died and rose again. I take a step back and think about the other moments of redemption. Were we united with Christ in redemption predestined? Yes. Chosen in him. Were we united at the moment of redemption accomplished? We've just seen that. Yes. Were we united with Christ at the moment of redemption applied? Yes. By faith we were united to Christ. Are we going to be united with Christ at the point, at the moment of redemption consummated? Yes. Uh, To be with Christ, which is far better, says Paul. So union with Christ traverses the four moments of redemption in Paul. Redemption predestined, accomplished, applied, consummated. Union with Christ is the sphere which unites those four moments together or in which those four moments exist. And again, Paul does not allow a collapsing of those distinct 
parts of union with Christ into each other, but neither does he allow a separation from them. We were elected in Christ. We died with Christ. And there's a sense in which we were born children of wrath, not yet united to Christ. And we had to believe in his death and resurrection, at which point we were united to Christ. And there's a sense in which we are still waiting to be finally united to Christ in person. Some theological reflections on union with Christ and the atonement. One, redemption accomplished and applied cannot be separated. It's union with Christ that stops us separating the two moments of redemption accomplished and applied. Two, union with Christ means that the particularity of the atonement does not occur just at the moment of redemption applied. People say, I believe in particular redemption. Christ died for everyone. But at the moment we believe, that's when it's particular redemption. But if union with Christ is right, then particular redemption has to be moved back to the moment of redemption accomplished. The particularity of the atonement must take place prior to the moment of redemption applied. It takes place at Christ's death. His death was an in union with kind of death. Third, being united with Christ means that Christ's substitutionary atonement is a representative substitutionary atonement, not merely a bare instead of substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ was not like a substitute on a sports field. You know, just one guy substitutes for another guy. Jesus Christ was husband, king, head, shepherd, master, firstborn, second and last Adam. And when he dies, he doesn't lay any of those offices or roles aside. Jesus Christ could not fail to be who he was when he died. And when he died, he died as king for his people, as husband for his bride, as head for his body, as shepherd for his sheep, master for his friends, firstborn for his brothers and sisters, and second and last Adam for a new humanity. That is what makes his death efficacious. He dies as someone for some people. And this is one of the biggest problems, I think, with universal atonement. You have to have Jesus divest himself of his offices and his roles and the parts that he plays in the drama of redemption at the very moment when the drama reaches its climax. He has to sort of divest himself and just become a general saviour for people that he won't ever save. But that is not how Christ is presented to us. We cannot separate the person and the work of Christ. And that is one of the things that union with Christ helps us with. His death is a representative atonement. Number four, the saving work of God in Christ is Trinitarian. Paul's soteriology is accomplished by union with Christ, but it finds its place in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4, 4 to 6, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, 
born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This passage presents us with a beautiful example of the Trinity in unity at work in our salvation. God the Father sends his two emissaries to accomplish and apply redemption. The Son to redeem us from under the law in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. And the Spirit to be in our hearts so that as sons we might cry, Abba, Father. The obedience of Son and Spirit to the Father ensures harmony of purpose. The circle of salvation that starts with the Son, that starts with the Father in sending the Son and the Spirit closes in communion with Him as newly adopted sons cry, Abba, Father. The Son is designated simply as God's Son. The Spirit is sent as the Spirit of the Father and the Son, which implies that the Father's sending of the Spirit is incorporation with the Son, whose Spirit He is. And when you get to Romans 8, verse 9, the Spirit is called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8 is another example of the persons of the Trinity working together. And also, Titus chapter 3. If you just flick back to Titus 3, did you notice how Trinitarian it is? When the goodness and loving kindness of God the Father, uh, of God our Savior appeared, God the Father saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom... God the Father poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior. Do you see the three persons of the Trinity working together in harmony to bring about our salvation? It's there in 2 Timothy 1 as well. The Father and the Son working together to bring about salvation. The persons of the Trinity have distinct roles, uh, but they always work together in unity. And it's not that in each moment of redemption, one of the persons of the Trinity is uh, prominent, but it's not that the others are just passive, just watching spectators. As you read Paul, you see that at each of the moments of redemption, when one person of the Trinity is at work, the others are present. So in the moment of redemption predestined, God the Father elected us in Christ, his Son, and predestined us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In the moment of redemption accomplished, while it was the Son who who became incarnate, it was the Father who sent him, Romans 8, and the Spirit who vindicated his appearance in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3. And while the Son gave himself for our sins, it was the Father who set him forth as a propitiation. The Son secured our reconciliation, but the initiation came from the Father in the power of the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. In other words, where the Son is, there is the Father and the Spirit. In the moment of redemption applied, we're able to receive the promised Spirit through faith only because the Son incarnate became a curse for us. The regenerative action of the Spirit occurs through the Son's work as Savior. And when the Spirit is active in us, 
It is the Father's love that he pours into our hearts when we trust in the Son. Where the Spirit is, there is the Father and the Son. And God, the Father's activity, straddles the moments of redemption accomplished and applied. In the one, he sends his Son to redeem us from under the law. In redemption applied, he sends his Spirit to ensure our adoption as sons. Where the Father is, there is the Son, and there is the Spirit. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. Now, the theological reflection on this is that the intentionality of the atonement is therefore thoroughly Trinitarian. Now, you won't find an Arminian, an Amaraldian, or a hypothetical universalist who disagrees with that. Everyone says salvation is Trinitarian. God's work has always been the unity of the persons in the Trinity. Read Jacob Arminius. He talks about the Trinitarian harmony in the work of salvation. The difference is um, whether the goals and the purposes of each person in the Trinity are the same. A Trinitarian approach moves us towards a doctrine of definite atonement because alongside union with Christ, it prohibits any discrepancy between any of the persons of the Trinity as if the Father would want the Son to come and die for everyone, but then the Spirit only draws the elect or the Father wants to, wants to save the elect, the Son comes to die for everyone, but then the Spirit only draws the elect. On all those other schemes, the Arminian, the Amoraldi, and the hypothetical universalist, you have Trinitarian disharmony. You have, excuse the pun, cross purposes at the cross where they are all trying to accomplish different things. In the saving work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in harmony for the intention of saving the elect. And finally, the saving work of God in Christ is doxological. The saving work of God in Christ is doxological. We return to Ephesians chapter 1, where we started this talk. There is this final component of Paul's soteriology. Three times, the apostle states the ultimate purpose of God's saving acts to the praise of his glory. Now, it's important to observe where in the paragraph that phrase appears. God the Father elects and predestines us in Christ, his Son, to the praise of his glory, verse 6. So, it occurs at the, at the moment of redemption predestined. It then occurs at the moment of redemption applied, verse 12. We obtain an inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then it appears again at the moment of redemption consummated. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit who acts as a guarantee for our future inheritance to the praise of his glory. God's glory accompanies his acts of predestining, applying, and consummating salvation. God saves people from first to last, really and truly, and he does it for the praise of his glory. And I think this is one of the biggest obstacles for those who are advocates of a universal atonement. 
a salvation intended and accomplished but never realized can bring God no glory. Isaiah 53, the servant will see the work of his soul and be satisfied. How can he be satisfied if some of those for whom he died are never saved? How can God be glorified? There is a better option, a definite atonement that displays the indivisible, Trinitarian work of God in Christ, whereby sinners are actually saved to the praise of his glorious grace. To bring this talk to a conclusion, I've looked at the fourth set of atonement texts in Paul. In Paul's atonement theology, there were the particularistic texts, the universalistic texts, the perishing texts, and these have been the doctrinal loci texts that relate to his atonement theology. And I've tried to synthesize the texts and synthesize the internally related doctrines that impinge upon those texts. We've seen eschatology. We've seen election, we've seen union with Christ, we've seen Christology, we've seen Trinitarianism, we've seen doxology. All of those doctrines impinge on the intent and nature of the atonement. And when you approach the doctrine of definite atonement from a more theological perspective that avoids the textual tit-for-tat, then I think a firmer basis is created for believing in definite atonement. And more importantly, one which enriches our own personal understanding of the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you, Johnny. Um, We're going to take a couple of minutes for questions now before we have a break. Let me, where's the uh, schedule? This is Wing Commander Woodrow on the task. I can be shorter if you have questions in the next session. Okay, well, you get the two of you up here, tag team. In the second one, in the last one, yeah. So we, what, we go to break now and then do questions all in yeah, the way? If you want to, I'm, if you want to I can be shorter if it allows to do that. Um, well, where are we now? We are at ten, uh, five past three. Um, why don't, would you be happy with that? I'm fine. Okay. I, I'm Why easy. don't we do a, well let's reconvene at, does 20 past 3, because it's 5 past 3 now, 15 minute break, and then we'll go into the fourth session with a Q&A, um, and then we'll sing to close, I think we'll sing to close as the other time goes, we may get carried away in a Q&A. Alright, 15 minutes, back in here, prompt 20 past for next session. <laughs> Thank you.